you're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Naim, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her, and he said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bear, and the bear stood still, and he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. This is the word of the Lord. About a decade ago, I was walking near Seacliff Bridge. For those who do not know, Seacliff Bridge is the bridge of Wollongong, the bridge of the Illawarra. It is a marvel of engineering, a stunning structure. You know, tourists go there to get some Instagram shots, uh, filmmakers for car manufacturers film car ads there. It's a beautiful bridge. And, and as I was walking along near this bridge, about a decade ago, my foot slipped and my heart started racing. You see, beneath me wasn't concrete, but instead was the stony ocean. I wasn't walking above the bridge at the time. No, instead I was walking below the bridge as it ties back into the headland on the northern side. You see, at this time, I was a civil engineer working for the Roads and Maritime Services. And one of my projects was to fix some drainage issues around the bridge. This bridge was built in 2005, uh, but it needed some extra maintenance to try and prevent any future erosion. But as a young engineer, I couldn't visualize that work that needed to be done. And so I decided to do something that was incredibly dumb. I went out to the site to do a site inspection, but I went all by myself without a harness, without a spotter. And then I decided to walk down into this dodgy section so I could get a better look, unaware that as I walked down there, I got to a cliff face. And it was a section that was just too tight for me to turn around and to go back to the car. And so I had to persevere to get to safety on the other side. And it's at this point that my foot slipped. That was one of the scariest moments in my life. And that's because death is scary. You know, death is the end. There's no coming back from the dead. I wonder if you've ever had a near-death experience like I had. You know, maybe you flirted with a cliff face. Maybe you've had a horrible car accident or a close call. Maybe you've had a battle with cancer where you stared death in the face. You know, near-death experiences, they, they change you. They change your perspective on life. They teach you how fragile life is. And in Luke chapter 7, we come across a near-death experience or what technically is a death experience that becomes a near-death experience because of Jesus. You see, in Luke 7, we see this beautiful encounter between Jesus and the grieving widow. And it's an encounter where we see the compassion of Jesus and what faith in Him looks like. And so you have a Bible, open it up, turn it on, come with me to Luke chapter 7. We're going to start in verse 11, and we're going to have a look at this encounter, this story that has three scenes. 
The first scene that I've called the clash of two crowds, the clash of two crowds. So have a look at verse 11 with me. Soon afterward, he, that's Jesus, went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. Now, the clash of crowds happens at Nain, this small but scenic town. And actually, the word Nain literally means beautiful. And you see, Jesus had his disciples with him as well as a crowd of him. You see, at this point in time, Jesus was a rabbi. He was a teacher. He was an itinerant preacher, and he was gathering a crowd. You know, in earlier in Luke's gospel, he had preached his famous Sermon on the Mount. And so he was building this following. But also in Luke chapter 6, he heals the servant of a famous centurion in Capernaum. And so people see that he's a teacher and a healer. He's a miracle worker. And so people are entertained. They're captivated. And so they start to follow Jesus. And this crowd even follows Jesus as he walks from Capernaum to Nain, which is a two-day walk. Imagine being part of this crowd. Imagine the excitement, imagine the conversations, like, hey, do you, like, do you remember what he said about your, loving your enemies? Remember them thinking, like, what's he going to do next? Like, is he going to fly? Is he going to defeat the Romans? Is he going to make a burrito so hot that he can't eat it? Well, as this crowd enters into name, the mood changes. As the crowd of Jesus clashes with the crowd of a funeral. As the way of life meets the way of death. Have a look at verse 12 with me. And he drew near to the gate of the town. Behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. Do you remember the first time you learned about death? I remember when I was young and my father sat me down and he explained to me that my grandma had died. Uh, She was a beautiful, kind, lovely woman. And yet that was the first time I even heard about the concept of death. And so as a young kid, as much as I was grieving the loss of my grandma, I was also just grieving the concept of death itself. Like death is scary. Death is frustrating. Death is painful. Death is unnatural. You know, author of Lord of the Rings, Tolkien, says these words about death. He says, There is no such thing as a natural death. Nothing that happens to a man is ever natural, since his presence calls the world into question. All men must die. But for every man, his death is an accident, and even if he knows it, and consents to it, an unjustifiable violation. And look, this is why Jesus wept at the the tomb of Lazarus. This is why we weep at funerals today. Death is awful. Funerals are awful. And yet, did you notice that this is no ordinary funeral? No, this is a funeral of a widow who's not just lost her husband, but now she's lost her only son. Now she's all alone. Like picture yourself in her shoes. Imagine her tears. Feel her fears. You know, as as a widow in particular in this society, imagine being her and at home all alone. Imagine being all alone in in this place or this house. And now she's lost any security. Her family's gone. Her her family line has ended. But but now also her financial and physical security is under threat. You know, as a widow in this society, she would have had to depend upon others for charity. And back in these days as well, cemeteries were held on on the outskirts of town to protect the healthy from the diseases of the dead. And so when someone died, the funeral happened on the same day. After a body uh, dies, what happens is that they, they, they put some anointment on it, some oil, and then they wrap it up in a cloth, and then they put it on a burial plank, and then they carry the body out of the city. It happens so quickly. And yet this is the thing about death. 
is it just happens so much quicker than we, we, we want it to happen. You know, one moment you're talking, you're smiling, and the next moment this poor widow is putting her son into the ground. In 1887, uh, Wollongong was primarily a, a mining and a farming town. Um, and despite the fact that there's only like a few thousand people around though, there were Christians here, there were churches here. They saw new land and new opportunities, so they came to form new church communities. You see the, uh, the Presbyterian started church, which all the Scottish went along to, the Anglican started church, which the English went along to, and then the Catholic started church, which the Irish went along to. But then over time, the Methodists came and the Congregationals came as well. And in this time in 1887, there was, there was many Christians, but there was also many mines. And then there was a six-month mine strike. You see that the workers of the mine, the union workers, they had some conditions that they wanted to have improved. But the owners of the mine didn't want this. And so what they did instead is that they actually hired some replacement workers to come and work in their mines in their place. The union workers hated this. And they called these traders, these other miners who were hired, blacklegs. If you don't know what blackleg is, it's a, um, a disease that's in cattle that leads to necrosis, that leads to blacklegs. And so this was an offensive term for these traders that these union mine workers were calling them. And back in 1887, sometimes during church, these union mine workers would leave church if a, if a blackleg was to enter into the gathering. And then 2.30 p.m. on the 23rd of March in, 1980, in 1887, there was an explosion at a mine in Bulai killing 81 men and boys instantly, leading to 50 widows and 130 fatherless children. This event devastated the town. You know, back then there was no Centrelink, there was no government support. These widows were scared and anxious about their future, how they would support and provide for their families. But also the widows of these blackleg workers were then also enduring horrible cruelty still from these union mine workers after their husbands had passed away. You know, back then the pastors, they were doing what they can. They were burying the dead. They were grieving. They were counseling the grieving. And they were also raising funds to help support the widows and all in these infants. And yet they, they mourned that they couldn't do more. They mourned that they couldn't stop the cruelty or they couldn't raise more funds for the vulnerable. And look, today, you and I, you know, we've been in positions where we've had to mourn with those who are mourning, where we've been there to comfort those who are broken and those who are grieving. And look, it's a real privilege to be in those positions and to love people in those moments, in those times and places. But I don't know about you, but whenever those times happen, I always feel ill-equipped and underprepared. You know, I always feel like, what, what can I say that will help? I, 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 I don't know where to, say, where to stand, what to say, what, like where to look. I'm always after more guidance as to how do I love people when they're grieving? How do I show people compassion? Well, if you're like me and you're after more guidance, come with me back to verse 11 as we look at scene two of this story, the weeping widow. The weeping widow. Have a look at verse 13 as we learn about the compassion of Jesus. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. Earlier this year before lockdown hit, um, I went to Wollongong Library and my plan was to do some work, find a desk, put headphones on and, you know, write a talk about how to love people like Jesus. Uh, but before I entered into the building, there was a woman who was outside the building all alone crying. And at the time, I didn't know what to do. Like part of me just thought, you know, like I'm sure she's okay. I'm sure she doesn't want me to help her. Like how can I help her? Like I don't want to invade. I want to give her, I want to give her privacy. I don't want to invade her space. 
You know, I'm ashamed to say this, but sometimes in life, it's, it's easy to ignore people than to go help them. And yet my conscience wouldn't let me. And so I walked over to this woman and I said, hey, are you okay? Is there anything I can do to help? Is there anyone I can call? And she replied, thanks for caring, but I'm okay. Someone is on their way. And to be honest with you, when she said that, I was a little bit relieved because like I wanted to help, but I didn't want to help. Like, I didn't know how to show compassion and I, I, I feel ill-equipped. You know what I love about Jesus in this story it is, is how he shows compassion to a stranger. You know, like he enters into the town of Nain. He doesn't know anyone here and yet he sees this woman who is grieving. He sees this dead body and he enters in. He's not afraid of the tears. He's not afraid of the pain. He's not afraid of the awkward conversation. No, he sees a problem. He knows he can help and he wants to enter in and with courage and compassion, he wants to help. I love that about Jesus here. You know, the word compassion literally means to suffer with someone. You see, there's a difference between sympathy, empathy, and compassion. With sympathy, you see someone's pain. With empathy, you feel someone's pain. And then with compassion, you see, you feel, and you enter in and you do your best to help someone with that pain. You see, here's the thing. You can be sympathetic, but unhelpful. You can be empathetic and actually unloving. Compassion requires action. It means you step in and you don't just cry and then walk away. But no, you sit, you enter in, you you guide, you help, you love. Frederick Bruckner said these words about compassion. He said, compassion is sometimes the fatal capacity for feeling what it's like to live inside somebody else's skin. It is the knowledge that there can never really be any peace and joy for me until there is peace and joy finally for you too. To have compassion means to emphasize with someone's suffering. It means to suffer with them and to in with them and to help them as best you can. Not in like, I'm a superhero sort of way, let me come and save the day. No, instead it looks like you suffering with someone, loving them, praying for them, being strong for them, doing what you can for them and to help them. Don't miss as well the the courage needed to show compassion. You know, not just for Jesus who was human, but also for us. You know, think about the parable of the Good Samaritan. You know, you got the, the Levite and the priest who walks past the beaten man. And look, they were full of excuses as to why they didn't help this beaten man on the side of the road. But also, I guess that they're also full of fear. And they lacked courage to go and help this man. You know, Christian, over and over again, the Bible says to us, do not be afraid. Be strong and courageous. And one way in which we can be strong and courageous is by showing compassion. You know, especially to a world like today where there is fear and anxiety, where we're in a pandemic. You know, now is the time for us as we encounter people to show the compassion of Jesus and to be courageous as we do this. You know, like we live in an unhospitable culture that's not used to having people over. And so we can show courage and compassion through hospitality to loved ones and to strangers. You know, we live in a lonely world. We can show compassion and courage by befriending the lonely, just like Jesus did as well. You see, compassion, it requires courage. It requires you stepping out of your comfort zone. Like it's easy to show compassion to your son or your daughter, someone you know and love, but it takes courage to show compassion to those who are beyond your circles. It might stretch us. It might hurt us, stretch us financially, but it is worth it. 
at Seed on a Hill, we uh, are in partnership with an organization called Compassion. It's a, an organization that's mission statement is to release children from poverty in Jesus' name. And as a movement of churches at Seed on a Hill, we have a goal to try and financially sponsor 1,000 children. We're currently at about 670. And look, if you're not already financially supporting a child through Compassion or another organization, I want to encourage you to have the courage to do so and to show compassion through the finances that you have. You know, Emma and I, we have some compassion kids who we love and pray for and sponsor. And I encourage you to do the same. If you want more information, you can go to compassion.com.au or come talk to me as well. I'd love to share with you more information about compassion. You see, the compassion of Jesus here, in many ways, is expected, but it is still so beautiful. Don't miss it. But also take, take notice here of not just the compassion of Jesus, but, but the words of Jesus. And how he's a bit shocking, right? Like he says to this widow, do not weep. Like if I'm at a funeral, I don't say to the widow, do not weep. I'm like, it's okay to cry, let it out. Like it's okay to mourn. But Jesus says to her, do not weep. And look, this may have offended her or shocked her. And yet Jesus is just getting started. Have a look at verse 14. Then he, that's Jesus, came up and touched the bear. And the bear stood still. Now the bear is where the body lay. And so here Jesus is touching a dead body, which in Jewish culture is a no-no, right? Like if you touch a dead body, you become unclean and defiled. And yet Jesus, when he touches things, he doesn't become unclean. No, instead he's the one who cleans the unclean. And so he touches the dead. And as a result, the bearers, they stood still. They're probably thinking, who is this man? Who do we think he is? But not only does Jesus touch the dead, he then speaks to the dead. Have a look once again, verse 14. Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up, started speaking. And then I love this line. And then Jesus handed him to his mother. I love this because what it teaches us is that this, this story is not so much about Jesus' compassion for the dead, but Jesus' compassion for this widow, for this grieving mother, for this forgotten one, for the, for the, for the down and, and, and the, the broken and the lonely. This is, this is who Jesus has shown compassion to. And look, if you're joining with us today, I need you to understand this, that Jesus is a God of compassion that if you put your faith in Him, that He'll be there for your time of need. He'll be there to comfort you and show compassion. He will enter in, fill your pain, and be there to either heal your pain or help you endure through it. You know, He may or may not resurrect the dead in your life, and yet He will be there in the dark nights of the soul if you invite Him in to, to comfort you and to sustain you. Because here's the thing about Jesus. He's not afraid of the mud and the mess in our lives. Like he knows what it's like to be human. He knows what it's like to suffer. He knows what it's like to live through pandemics and see loneliness and betrayal. But maybe you're thinking, Joel, if if Jesus has this power to raise the dead, to heal people, why didn't he heal more people? Why, Why didn't he raise more bodies? Why didn't he just go into cemeteries and just raise the dead left, right and center? You know, why today doesn't he heal more people? Why doesn't he heal me whenever I pray to him? That's a great question I think many of us wrestle with. And to answer that, we need to go to verse 16. And we need to go to the third scene, which I've entitled, The Local Tourist. The Local Tourist. Have a look at verse 16 with me. 
Fear seized them all, and they glorified God. This is the crowd saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread throughout the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. I don't know if you remember what a tourist is. It's been a while since I've seen one. But a tourist is someone who comes to a location just for a temporary period of time and they come to taste the food, see the sights, make some memories, take some photos and then leave. Whereas a local is someone who belongs in a certain location. You know, most likely they're born there, they've grown up there, but or they're, they're committed to that location, they invest in that location, they identify, they belong there. And you know what, here's the interesting thing about Jesus. It's that in many ways, he is a local to earth, but he's also a tourist. He's a local tourist. You see, stay with me here as I explain this metaphor, but, but Jesus is a local. He is human. He's like you and I. He was born here on the earth. He grew up. He worked here and he died here. He belonged here. He was like you and I. And specifically, he was a local to Galilee, to northern Israel. Like he dressed like them. He spoke like them. And so when they see his miracle, they say, a great prophet has arisen among us. They're like, he's one of us. You know, and they're proud of him. Just like we're proud of Australians at the Olympics. They're proud of Jesus. And they call him a great prophet because they see that the similarities and the the parallelism between him and the great prophet Elijah. You see, in 1 Kings, Elijah, who's possibly the greatest prophet in the Old Testament, there's a story where he resurrects the son of a widow. And so they see Jesus and they call him a great prophet. He's a local like us. And yet, notice what they also say. They say God has visited his people. You see, I mentioned before, Jesus was an incredible rabbi, incredible teacher, this itinerant preacher and a miracle worker. And yet here in this miracle, we also see that he is God, that he is the Lord. You see, the author of Luke's gospel is the Dr. Luke. And throughout Luke's gospel, Jesus is being called Lord before this story. But here in chapter 7, verse 13, is the first time where Luke himself calls Jesus the Lord. When he says, And the Lord, or when the Lord, saw her. Now, at other times in Luke's gospel, before this point, he would have said, and when Jesus saw her. But here, Luke adds the commentary of the Lord to emphasize that here, this miracle of raising this widow's son from the dead is proving to us the divinity of Jesus. You see, the crowd said, and God has visited his people. And what they meant by that is they're implying that, you know, in this moment, this temporary moment, God has come to visit us. When actually, no, God is visiting his people through the person of Jesus. And you see, when you look at the parallelism between this miracle and the one of Elijah's, when you look at the details, you you see this in the divinity of Jesus. You see, Elijah, he, he resurrected a widow's son, but he did so by praying, in particular by praying to God the Father for him to intervene and for him to resurrect. And yet Jesus doesn't pray to God the Father. No, he goes and he speaks directly to the corpse to show his authority and his divinity. The preacher Sinclair Ferguson says this about this parable. He says, I mean, this story, uh, the great prophet who heals not merely through delegated authority from God, but on his own authority, without rituals or prayers, but with a simple word of power. He is the great God and savior of Israel in the flesh. You see, here's the thing about Jesus. He is the God man. He's like us, but he's unlike us. He's human, but he's also divine. He's a local, but he's also a tourist. 
He's of this world, but he's not of this world. And this is good news because what it means is that he's like us. He knows what it's like to suffer. He can be our great high priest. But at the same time, he's unlike us. He's divine. He's God. And so he can also save us and help us. Now, you're probably thinking, Joel, that's great. But what does all this theology got to do with the simple question of why doesn't Jesus heal more people today? Well, it's important you understand what is the mission of Jesus and what was the mission of Jesus when he came 2,000 years ago? Because you see, when Jesus came 2,000 years ago, his mission wasn't to heal people physically, but instead his main mission was to heal all people spiritually. You see, he came and visited one generation for one purpose, to save souls, to defeat suffering, sin and death forever. And you see, what this means is that when Jesus came and when he resurrected the dead, when he healed the sick, when he cast out demons, he was showing compassion to people and revealing his character and his divinity. But at the same time, that wasn't his main mission. His main mission was to point people to eternity, to point people to the time where he'll come back and judge the living and the dead and end all suffering. You see, here this miracle of resurrection points us to the future where Jesus will resurrect all people. Jesus' mission wasn't to heal people temporarily, but to heal people eternally. His mission was to defeat suffering, sin, and death forever. And for him to do this, he couldn't, he couldn't save us from a distance. No, instead, he had to enter in, or in the words of Bruckner, he had to enter into our skin and suffer with us and suffer for us. He had to live the perfect life and know what it's like to be human He lived this perfect life where he showed compassion where we wouldn't have shown compassion, where he didn't ignore people, but instead he entered in. He was a man of courage and compassion. And then he went to the cross to suffer for our decisions and choices and for for the times where we haven't shown compassion to others or where we've inflicted pain upon others. And then he rises again from the dead to prove his authority over death, to kill death. And also his resurrection is guaranteed for those who put their faith in him that one day we will be resurrected so that we can have hope of eternal life and a life of no more tears, suffering or pain or widows or pandemics or divorces or death. But until Jesus comes back, this world that we live in is marred by sin and suffering. It's broken and we're broken. And that suffering sucks. It's painful and it is frustrating. And yet take heart. If you're a follower of Jesus, that he is in control. You know, if we were in control, we would just try and remove all suffering. Like that doesn't make sense to us. Philosophically, the concept of suffering doesn't make sense to us. And yet the good news of the gospel is that Jesus is in control. And then even though he doesn't want us to suffer He doesn't look at suffering. He's not bamboozled by it. It's not like, oh, this is ruining my plan. No, God looks at suffering. He works through it to bring about his plans and purposes through the cross of Jesus, but also through the challenges in our lives. God works through them. You know, as Martin Luther once said, affliction is the best book in the library, in my library. You know, in um, in 1967, there was this Christian woman called Johnny Erkerson Tata. And she was an athlete. Her father was an Olympian. And um, she dived into shallow water one afternoon. And as she did this, her head hit the riverbed and she broke her neck, leaving her paralyzed from her shoulders down. 
And for years, she, she, as a follower of Jesus, she prayed for Jesus' healing. She prayed for a miracle and yet she didn't receive one. And so she's been wrestling with a question that we are always wrestling with, which is like, why doesn't Jesus heal us more? And this is her response. Does God miraculously heal? Sure, he does. But in the bro- this broken world, it's still the exception, not the rule. A no answer to my request for miraculous physical healing has meant purge sin, a love for the lost, increased compassion, stretched hope, an appetite for grace, an increase of faith, a happy longing for heaven, a desire to serve, a delight in prayer, and a hunger for his word. Oh, bless the stern schoolmaster that is my wheelchair. Our God is a God who will end suffering one day for those who put their faith in Jesus. But to be precise of you, it's only for those who put their faith in Jesus. You see, we, we, we live in, in this world. It's a broken world. It's a communal world where my actions don't just affect me, but they affect others. And when my actions affect others and cause pain within others or pain towards God, the Bible calls those actions sin. And such sin requires punishment. And that's why Jesus went to the cross to take our punishment, to suffer on our behalf so that we would have our suffering that we deserve taken away and so that we may avoid eternal suffering of hell, a place for people who are unrepentant and and unremorseful of their sin and suffering towards other people and towards God. You know, earlier I talked about how Wollongong was a mining town and I shared with you that story at Bulli and how there was an explosion that that killed many people. Well, do you know in 1902, only like five years later, there was another explosion at Mount Kembla, which killed 100, no, sorry, 96 men and boys, leaving 33 widows and 120 children at fathers. Once again, the town was devastated. And yet, do you know later on that year, some Christians came to those, to those miners and preached the good news of the gospel, preached the bad news that, that we are living in a fallen world where our actions hurt other people in God. And the good news of how Jesus entered in, took on our skin, was like us, is one of us, and then died at the cross to defeat Satan and sin and then rose again so we have the hope of eternal life. And you know what happened? Revival. You see, these miners, they had been struck, smashed in the face by these explosions. They were realized that life is fragile, that their life will end. And so they heard the good news of the Savior, the one who resurrects, the one who shows compassion, and they put their faith in Him. And their lives were changed. The city was changed. Marriages were healed. The poor were cared for. There was revival. And look, your life can be changed. By putting your faith in Jesus, death is not the end, but only the beginning. All you need to do is trust in Him as your Savior, as the God-man who lived, who died, and rose again on your behalf. Sit on a hill. This story, this encounter between Jesus and this widow is predictable and simple. And yet it's also oh so beautiful. As we see the compassion of Jesus, as He enters in and into our skin as he suffers with us and he suffers for us as he loves us beyond what we deserve as he gives us hope of resurrection one day so that death is not the end but death is only the beginning and so that any time or whenever we do die that death will be a near-death experience 
because of Jesus who resurrects the dead. May this truth change us just like a near-death experience would. May it help us be people who live loving Jesus, talking about Jesus. May it shape and fuel our prayers. And may we believe that Jesus can bring revival in our day, that he can change souls who go from death to life by putting their faith in this beautiful and compassionate God. Father God, we thank you for the good news of the gospel. We thank you for Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Oh Lord, help us to see his beauty. Help us to see his courage and his compassion. Help us to love him. Help us to be like him. And we pray that you bring revival to the Illawarra like you did many years ago. So we may see many souls saved and this city changed. And we pray this in the beautiful name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.